Hey, I'm Patsy Fonsarelli. Hi, this is John Matishak. And you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, what's going on? Oh, you know, uh, living the dream, you. Yeah, it's going okay. Hey, just as a reminder, because uh, we buried the lead last time, if you want to subscribe to Assemble.tv, which you totally should, and you should totally go to our Cinepod channel on YouTube and watch the incredible demonstration of Assemble.tv with uh, the founder, Nate Watkin, you can do that. You can do all these things, and you should subscribe to us while, while, you're, th- <laughs> while you're there. And it's the, the promotional code that you need for a free month of Assemble is Cinepod. Type in Cinepod, you get a month free. Do it. Ben, what's going on with you? We have uh, two interviews with uh, the director and the DP of Old Henry, which for those listening to the sound of my voice who haven't seen it, go check out the trailer for it. It's a Western. So if you're into Westerns, definitely check it out. It stars Tim Blake Nelson, who I've never actually seen be the lead in a movie. He's always like Delmar in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he is gross in this movie. Oh my God, he is scary and gross. To me, this is the Wild West version of like the Bob Odenkirk movie Nobody or like a John Wick movie where it's like, you're watching it. It's kind of a slow burn. You don't know when this guy is going to go off, but you know that it's going to be extraordinarily violent. Extraordinarily violent. I think it's fantastic, actually. I think Tim Blake Nelson is so great in this role. I, I mean, he's, I loved he's the movie. so great. Love. I'm not yeah. saying anything negative about it. I loved this movie. I thought it was awesome from the first to the last frame. And there was a surprise for me, a personal surprise, in the interview with director Patsy Ponsaroli. In the middle of the interview, let's just say I got a surprise, and that led directly to us interviewing the cinematographer, John Matishak, and I won't, I won't talk anymore about the surprise because we talk about it during the interview. Okay. But uh, it's a gorgeous film. Potsy has his process of, of kind of creating the script and how he worked with the actors and, and all that stuff. He, he lays it out. And I, I just have to say, I love this movie. I hope everyone listening to the sound of my voice considers checking it out. I know it's definitely a violent film, but I think you're still going to like it. I think, I think most people will love it. I agree. 100%. Hey, uh, it's time for our, our close focus. And Ben, uh, I got a question for you. Okay. Do you know who the largest entertainment company in the world by market cap, which is uh, total value, total value of the shares of the company, who out there is the largest entertainment company in the world? I mean, is, is this a trick question? Is this a company that I have heard of? Or is this uh, some somebody who makes movies in India or China that I've never no, heard no, of? No, no, no. It's it's the largest. You know who it is. It's Disney. Disney oh. is number oh, yeah, of one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. D- Disney See, is the pretty, number one. Pretty obvious. Yeah. $315 billion as of today. That's what their current market mm. cap is. Here's the question. This is not a trick question because you okay. know who the no- company number two is, but you may not know that they're as big as they are. Who do you think the number two largest most valuable company by market cap is in the world for entertainment for the entertainment industry who so, is that so it's got to be somebody that i don't expect 
it's got to be a, it's got to be somebody that I'm not thinking of. It's like a twenty four. It's like holy crap! It was a twenty four. Not a twenty four. No, no. Is, is it is it AMC Networks? No, it's not AMC Networks. They're 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 in the the top. I'll make a, a real guess. Okay, I'll, I'll make a real guess. Yeah. Netflix. It is Netflix. You're absolutely Whoa. right. Netflix. I is actually now, didn't know that for sure. I was I was talking up my butt. They had had a tremendous run up, and as the the investors and in, in Netflix are certainly aware but netflix is closing in on becoming the second 300 billion dollar plus valued entertainment company they're about 280 billion right now and the way that they are growing and i have heard from uh people like you know both inside and and sort of through the grapevine that they are in full-on full court press attack mode they are uh looking to better themselves and they don't have i mean here we're, we're talking about a difference of 35 billion dollars it's nothing to, to to sneeze at but they're quickly closing in on walt disney and you got to remember walt disney they've got theme parks they've got television channels they got all this stuff which makes them worth 315 netflix billion. should get into the theme park business uh, i would ne- like to see a midnight mass theme park where you just walk in and vampires monologue at you all day well netflix is doing it all pretty much a streaming service remember they they still do dvds although i think i might be the last person who gets dvds i i, I don't know but it's uh, you get dvds from netflix you actually do that do actually DVDs. you do yeah, i do i was joking i know i'm the last person but anyway <laughs> and that's how they started but now they're this massive massive company at least as far as value goes and you know, uh, by by evidence of things like colossal hits like Squid Game being like the number one yeah. streaming uh, series in 90 countries, uh, you know, they're they're doing pretty well right now. They're they're really uh, kind of cleaning up. So it's 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 no, very no, it's, it's not not surprising, not surprising. So and then it's like you know the next company down actually is is a company from Singapore who you probably are not aware of. It's a company called C. And they're worth 174 mm. billion dollars. And then uh, the next one is a company you've heard of, and it's Sony, which clocks in at 135 billion. But remember, they got all kinds of other divisions and things. Well, that's interesting because you know, like Disney, obviously, uh, all these companies have like a rich history and have been around for a long time and have very dense, deep, amazing libraries. And Netflix has been around for under 20 years. And here I'm really going to blow your mind with this, you know, to round out the top 10, number 10 by market cap, largest entertainment companies in the world is Roblox. Have you, are you familiar with Roblox? Do you know what that is? I know you don't have any like 10 year olds in your home. <laughs> but no, I, I honestly don't know anything. Roblox about that. is a, is a video game that's mostly played like on tablets and, and, and the likes. So, Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, at least it's not Blippy. That's that's where I'm at with with a three year old. <laughs> no. At least Blippy is isn't the third large, uh, the tenth largest not Blippy, entertainment company not by market cap. Clues. No, it's not. <laughs> None of those. How dare you sully Blues Clues by comparing it to Blippy? I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't watch Blippy, folks. It's brain poison. Uh, it's probably better than Baby Einstein or Teletubbies. No, no, no. no. Those are better. Okay. <laughs> I've never seen Blippi. What? <laughs> I, I, we can do a Blippi challenge, and you and I can watch two minutes of Blippi and see how many murders you decide to commit while watching two minutes of Blippi. Uh, not, okay, that's not a good thing. Uh, no, is it like the Baby Shark th- song? Because that that pretty baby, much does it for me. Baby Shark is Lawrence of Arabia compared to Blippi. <laughs> Oh, it's the Lawrence of Arabia of uh, of three-year-old uh, centric programming. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Baby Shark is like the most entertaining thing ever next to Blippi. Wow. I, I don't want to get us sued by Blippi. Right. Blippi's not going to be a sponsor for us. I guess not. But man, oh man. 
<laughs> the the stuff you have to watch with a kid, a lot of it's cool, a lot of it's not. Blippy is like it's the worst of a YouTuber and the worst of children's programming all kind of fused together in in a, in a terrible uh, ectoplasmic residue <laughs> that you have to stare at on an iPad with a child. Uh, all right. Well, I, I think on that note, we should probably get to the interview. <laughs> all right. So uh, first up, let's talk. Let, let's do this in the order that the interviews were uh, were done in so that the audience can hopefully experience the surprise uh, along with me. So first up is Patsy Ponsaroli. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here with Patsy Ponsaroli, who has uh, directed an amazing new Western, and that's a phrase I don't use lightly, called Old Henry. A gorgeous, gorgeous film. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, no problem. I appreciate it. Um, I love getting good feedback. So the, thank you for <laughs> no. thank you for enjoying it. I, I really enjoyed it. I watched it last night. I mean, it is it is gorgeous. And uh, completely before I even knew that I was going to be talking to you, totally at random, I had, I realized I'd never seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's on HBO Max, and I and I watched that, and so I kind of already had like Western stuff in my head. And I don't mean to denigrate <laughs> westerns. I love a good Western, but I feel like we see a lot of people trying to reinvent the Western using uh, using the language of the westerns, and I feel like your movie uh, visually, and we're going to talk mostly about the visuals. It does it. I mean, like I see shots that remind me of the searchers. I see shots that remind me of lots of Westerns, but it feels very, very modern. And in fact, even for a Western takes place in like 1906, which isn't a time that I think of as wild West old, old timey times. Can you just talk a little bit about, well, I mean, first just tell me your pitch of the movie. And then I want to hear about the, the visual inspirations you had for it. So, okay. I mean, this movie kind of stemmed from the location. So, you know, we were, we were scouting for a different production and, um, you know, we were on this 2,500 acre property and we were walking around and I saw this house down in this valley and it's, you know, the house is a hundred plus years old. It's up on rocks and it just had this, it, just, it was just a beautiful house. Took a bunch of pictures of my phone, you know, just trying to, yeah to capture this, this house. And it started to, it started to get dark and that's, you know, the country gets very creepy at night. I, uh, I, I live in more of the downtown area of Nashville. And so that's kind of a scary place. And so that's where that, the story kind of, the genesis of it came was from this location. And what would I do if somebody came here and it was just me and I had to decide whether to trust them or not. And so the whole thing kind of built from there. So that was the actual house that, that you shot in? That was it. So we, um, you know, when this thing got, when the script, when I finished, we were, we were casting, we were ready to go. We actually looked at shooting in Oklahoma because the tax incentive was better. And three weeks before we couldn't get our letter from Oklahoma to approve the tax incentive. So I was talking to my partner, Shannon at hideout and, we're just like, why don't we just move it back to Nashville and shoot in the house that it was built for? So it's like it, we actually got to come back and shoot in the house that inspired the whole thing. And the entire, you know, the entire movie is shot within 200 yards of that house. All the valleys and all the hilltops and everything were just right there. You know, a quick, oh wow, a quick truck right away. So and and the interiors yeah. are also the the authentic interiors uh, that wasn't a set. Yeah, it was all everything was all in that house. And one thing I didn't realize, you know, beforehand was a lot of this because the house had a front porch on the other side the house faces the other way so we had to build a porch on the back we had Mm. to build the fence and the pig pen and all that stuff and so once we did that though the two rooms that face that hill were like six foot ceilings they're really short so that kind of you know getting in there with uh, john matashek who was a dp and you know we were out there about i'd say three or four weeks before just him and i walking around every day just trying to look at it and study the shots and study the the scenes and, and really kind of build a shot list and 
And what happened was the the house was so confined that we kind of made the decision to shoot, you know, more room to room and more, really kind of make the house feel tight and safe. And then the outside, we wanted everything to feel big and wide and vulnerable. So, you know, the location lent itself to a lot of what you see on camera, you know, it was out of necessity, but out of that, that kind of pushed us to, to get creative with what we had, um, which was, a, you know, I think really paid off. That's interesting, and you, and you kind of short-circuited one of my questions just now, uh, <laughs> because uh, one of my favorite genre movies of the last 10 years was The Witch, an amazing film where mm-hmm. uh, the one thing that they, they were like extremely historically accurate to the way houses were built, but the only thing they said was they made the windows bigger because okay. they were relying on natural light. So when I was watching the movie, I was like, I got them. The, this, you know, like that can't be an authentic house from that time, even though, you know, we're talking 100, 150 yeah. years later, just because it's like, oh, those windows are so big, you know, like right. I'm sure the glass would have been too expensive, but it, it's great to hear that that's like the authentic actual house that was built yeah, in that time. Those windows had that beveled, you know, they were that warbly beveled glass that's been sitting there forever. And it was, I mean, the house was beautiful. Well, that's that's actually fascinating. I love that the whole idea came from finding a location and kind of dreaming of the narrative that would happen. And you landed on quite an amazing narrative. Uh, it weirdly reminded me of modern movies like uh, Nobody and John Wick, where you have a character at the center of it who every indication is this guy's going to go off at some point. Like, the, like yeah. it's just, it's such a slow burn powder keg. And, and I always feel like with slow burns. It, there has to be a payoff and I don't want to spoil anything, but oh boy, is there a payoff in this movie? But can you talk about like a, as a director in any ways, but especially visually how you go about like drawing out that suspense and keeping mm-hmm. the audience engaged when it's not that nothing is happening. A lot is happening, but it's like, we know there's a big climax coming and we're yeah. expecting it. Like talk about how you kind of light that fuse and kind of keep it going narratively. I think it's tough. Cause you, you know, there was a lot of restraint and not holding things too long, especially in the edit, you know, we had these beautiful shots, but it's like, how long can, can that hold before it becomes an artsier film and not as commercial? So there's a fine line to skate there. Um, But, you know, in the, one of my favorite scenes is the dinner scene, which is a four and a half, five minute scene. John and I had talked about the kitchen's really small. It was, you know, an eight by 10 room with six foot ceiling. So we really had to design that shot to, and that scene to, to keep the tension while all that dialogue is going on. So the idea came, you know, we sit outside the room, we're, we're outside looking in and there's a, you know, a 50 second slow push in as they're telling a story. Yeah. And it's almost as if Tim, cause Tim's back to us the whole time. So we're listening to Scott Hayes's character talk and, he, and Tim's interrogating him. So it's almost like once Tim feels like we we're okay to come in, he lets us come in and that's when the first cut happens and we're, now we're on Tim. So we're inside the kitchen. Of course, Scott Hayes is amazing. He was his, yeah, I could listen to him tell a story all day. So <laughs> both of those guys, I mean, that's, that's just a really amazingly constructed scene too, because like through the whole thing, I'm like, well, especially, especially when Henry puts the thing, uh, the gun on the table, I'm mm-hmm. like, what is he doing? What's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> but also like he kept, he kept doing that. Th- those are the, also, I, I feel like great touches on your part because I felt like when, when stuff like that happens, I'm like, this guy's such a badass. 
that he's not afraid to, to leave yeah. a gun in front of an untied guy who might be his enemy, who's who's uh, presenting himself as a good guy. And so to me, like, it, I don't know, it just kept me guessing. And, and, and I thought that was brilliant. So you brought up your uh, cinematographer, John Matishak, a few times. Amazing work from him. Can you talk a little bit about how you started working with him? I know you've worked with him on some other projects and, and just sort of like, how does the collaboration between the two of you work? John and I first, so John, you know, he, he's from Nashville, he's from LA and Nashville, but he, I met him when he was in Nashville and he, um, I was shooting season one of Still the King, our TV show. And we had a director in and we had this 20 on 20 Johnny Cash versus Elvis Presley brawl, like bar brawl. And so I actually shot day two of that where I, I got to bring in a DP and we just shot just the fight scenes for a whole day. We had like eight hours of just playing with stuntmen. And so John came highly recommended. Um, so him and I just, I mean, we were like two kids, just, we had all these toys and we were shooting just the craziest stunts all day long. Are you good? I, I'm great. I'm sorry. My wife just told me something. Cause I was like, where do okay. I know his name from? He gaffed a, a short that I directed in like 2003. John did. John did really? Yeah. Who was the short? It's called conversations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My wife Crazy. literally just, just came over and, and handed me a oh, piece of paper with, with that written on. It. And I was like, I knew that name from somewhere. And whenever me. I'm looking at a DP, I don't, <laughs> sometimes I'll go look at their other credits, but usually I just look at what they shot. Um, yeah. you know, if I'm interviewing them, I might look all the way back. Cause you'll usually find something crazy, but I'm like, Holy crap. Where do Cause I've been like, I've actually been pulling my hair out trying to remember where I knew his, his name, name from. I'm sorry. I don't mean, he, to, I don't mean to interrupt. No, you're fine. He's, he's been texting me the whole time. He's like, um, just like, he's like, oh, this, cause this is, his, I told him I had this in this interview today and he was like, oh man, I want to talk. <laughs> so I'll have him on. Uh, I'll totally, oh, firstly, I'll have him on. Yeah. I would have had him on anyway, but secondly, yeah. please tell, please tell him I said hello. Cause I, again, like I knew, I knew his name from somewhere. That's just nuts. Uh, a guy yeah. named Fraser, Fraser Bradshaw shot it. Who's actually, uh, from Alabama. He lives in, in, uh, okay. he lives in San Francisco, but I, I, I used to work on movies like down in, in Mobile, Alabama. Anyway, I don't remember how John uh, came into our orbit on that because it's it, it was literally 2003. But I I knew I knew his name. Thank thanks, Alicia. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, I'm sorry awesome. to interrupt. No, no worries. That's awesome. So John and I sat out there for three weeks before we started shooting. You know, we get a pocket full of McChickens on the way out and stay all day at the property, and we literally just would walk around the property and read the scene out loud and kind of just walk through every step. And as I'm kind of choreographing the walkthrough, you know, John would be walking around me looking at angles and stuff. And, and so it, it really just was the two of us sitting out there shot listing every moment. And then when we get on set, there was, there was some creativity and, and kind of magic that happens in the moment that you have to kind of be open to. And there's one moment where, um, you know, when Wyatt comes into the, the bedroom and there's that mirror, the picture on the wall that's kind of beveled the glass. Yeah. And the, the shot is kind of a 50-50 shot. You see why it in the reflection. That happened. John and I were talking between two rooms and he was standing in the corner and we were just talking about the next shot. And he's like, oh, hey, come look at this. And he, you know, as I was walking up, he was like, oh, we got to do something. This is amazing. So then he went and walked in and I was like, oh, we got to do this. And so it was that kind of on the, on the day you find those little magic moments. And, yeah. and so that's where, you know, I'd say 10, 15% of the movie was, was in those moments. But for the most part, it was, you know, we were down to the, we'd walk in every day, hand the AD a shot list. And so he kind of knew where we were headed. That's, that's basically how we got, got through it in, in the amount of time we had. 
I always want to know too, like when you're shooting something that's, you know, basically the 90% of the movie takes place in this house, like mm-hmm. in or around this house there, you know, there's, you know, you go to the brother-in-law's house, you're in the fields kind of further away, but so much mm-hmm. of it takes place in the house. Visually, how do you approach it? Because I have encountered producers who will pressure you to block shoot everything. Okay. We're going to like, just find an angle and we're going to shoot this room out. You know, we'll shoot every scene in the, in the whole movie in this, yeah. in this one room. But like when you're shooting a movie with such a small cast, um, I don't know what your ability to shoot in sequence was or not, but like, did you do any block shooting? Because it doesn't, it didn't feel like it. It, it, it very much felt like every scene was its own scene. Yeah, it was. We, we, we basically, you know, and we would have scenes that because of the weather or because the sun came out, we'd be like, all right, we're scrapping this after lunch. We're going to pull this up, jump into, you know, just for the lighting or for the weather or whatever. There was actually, it snowed one day and the hill was beautiful. I mean, it was, there was snow in all the buildings and we were inside shooting while it was snowing. We were doing one of the, one of the bedroom scenes and John and I kept walking outside and looking and more snow was falling. We're like, ah, we have to shoot the final scene of Wyatt in snow because it would make it it would make it feel like time passed it would make it feel yeah. like such a, a new beginning so the wranglers brought up the horses the they sat them up why i got ready he was standing by we kept shooting inside you know sun was setting and we didn't make it in time um, oh we had everything ready and so then we actually in post had them add snow to that final scene and it just yeah, didn't yeah. It, it just didn't turn out it looked because it's such a long shot that final shot you could kind of see the patterns in the snow and stuff. So we, we scrapped the snow, but it was, we had that kind of spontaneity, spontaneity with, with our, and our AD killed us every day. Cause every day we'd meet at lunch and go, okay, here's the schedule. Here's what we want to change the schedule. So, you know, he, he stayed with us and he was, you know, Eric Williams is the AD. Yeah. He's amazing. And he, uh, he would pull his hair out every lunch, but then we'd all go ride horses. <laughs> and so it'd be fine. So your your job is to torture the AD, you know. And, that's it. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's, he it's, t- it's, he took it well. <laughs> I would I would so, never want that job. I, a no, good it's, AD, a it good was AD a thankless is the best. job. Oh man, they they just take it all, man. It's it's such a hard job. So can you tell me about like what Westerns or non-Westerns did you look to for inspiration? Because I, again, I see like, I definitely see a John Ford thing. There's those, you know, kind of iconic shots through the door where you see the rolling hills and fields and, and whatnot uh, off in the distance. And to me, that feels like there could be no more classic Western shot, but this is not a classic Western. This isn't even nihilistic in the same way that uh, the good, the bad and the ugly or the wild bunch or a lot of other uh, or, or unforgiven. But I feel like it has the DNA of all of those, but it also has something else going on. And can you talk about what your inspirations were? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, we set out to make a classic Western and, in, and by that, I mean, you know, a, a simple story, nothing flashy about it, just a simple story in the old West. And it really wanted to show how hard that life was, you know, and, and what the struggle was yeah. with the environment and with, you know, just that time period. So, and the biggest thing was the guns in this, you know, so gunplay in, in Westerns, the gun is so heavy and it's, it's so deadly that every bullet counts. So if you, yeah. if you watch, you know, there's always only six bullets loaded and only six bullets shot. And once you're done shooting, you have to find a place to hide to finish, to load, to reload. So that, you know, building that into the story because that's, that's authentic. And that feels, I love that. You, and it's something that I rarely see in movies. Like yeah, I, you, maybe the way of the gun, uh, the uh, yeah. Macquarie film, but like most, most movies that have gunplay, it's just like boom, boom, bang, bang, bang. And with this, I really felt like, like every bullet felt like a precious uh, commodity to these characters. Yeah. And it's so much so that, you know, even the sound of it, cause you know, I've fired guns at a ranger on a, you know, on a fence line before. And it, they're so loud that, even through the sound design, it was like, 
almost like cannons. We just want the loudest gunshot you could possibly do. And so, you know, one of the inspirations was uh, open range, the Kevin Costner, the shootouts in that were fantastic. I mean, and you know, I think that holds the record for the longest shootout. I don't know if it still does, but it's like a 17 minute plus minute shootout at the end. So part of us wanted to try to beat that record, but that was, we were stretching. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, in the, in the style and the tone and the feel of it, we really looked at hostels and assassination of Jesse James and there will be blood. Um, There will be blood not being a Western, but being in that early 1900s time period, just the openness and the, the starkness to things, you know, I think that was a big piece of it. Um, even the wardrobe, you know, the wardrobe has to feel thick and, and dirty and yeah, unwashed. And, everything and, and you did everything looked it, looked dirty and gross. <laughs> like everybody's yeah. clothes looked like they've been wearing them for weeks. Even, you know, right. like Stephen Dorff, who's probably, you know, the, the handsomest fella as he's presented <laughs> in the movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah. His, his clothes looked like they could use a good washing, but that's just, yeah. I mean, I, I love the authenticity of that. Yeah. that I think that was big. And that, you know, that comes from shows like Deadwood, which really sold that, you know, with the trumpet through the mud and things. And so, um, you know, I think those are, and then of course, you know, we all get in this business to make a star Wars movie. So that you know, <laughs> star Wars is the original weather, one of the original Westerns it's, you know, Western in space. So yeah, I think, you know, there's pieces of star Wars that, you know, that's a bigger thing, but that in the back of my brain, I'm like, you know, that's everyone wants to make a star Wars movie. So make a, make a Western and prove you can do it and maybe you get your chance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The lived inness of of the world and kind of the theme of modernity imposing itself at this stage in time. Like even in that first scene when his son's like, you know, we got a, they got machines that can do, you know, they're like digging a trench or something and he's like, yeah, machines that'll do this in a fourth the time. He's like, neat, whatever. And, and you know, when, when you talk about lived in stuff, like, you know, we're not really here to talk about what it's like to work with actors specifically, but we can talk a little bit about Tim Blake Nelson. I'm sure we're not used to seeing a lead who's so inscrutable and so just kind of rough trade, like road hard and put away wet. Like he really embraces kind of the kind of character. Like uh, what I loved about him was he seems like an authentic farmer that you would stumble across in the middle of the country. And and I feel like it fits into the overall style of everything. Uh, But can you talk a little bit about like how you went about creating that look for your main character? Tim was a dream to work with. I mean, he came on, uh, you know, he came on as an executive producer and he earned that to every degree. I mean, he was, oh, nice. so before, you know, I had a FaceTime with him like an hour and a half. We talked on the phone just to see, you know, he read the script. He just wanted to meet me. And so we hit it off over the, the FaceTime and he's like, all right, can I call you tomorrow? Are you willing to kind of go through my character with me? I'm like, absolutely. Let's, let's go through every inch of it. So for the next month, we, we probably talked an hour and a half, two hours a day before oh, wow. he ever signed his contract. Um, and we were reading books. We read, we watched movies, you know, he asked me if I'd seen McCabe and Miss Miller. And I was like, I was like, I, I haven't seen that one. He's like, all right, I'm going to hang up. Call me when you've seen it. <laughs> so it was like, you know, he wanted me to get, he wanted wow. to show his movies that influenced him. And then, you know, I showed him the movies that I influenced me. And so really had a great back and forth, but coming down to his, his look, you know, in originally kind of a lot of people kind of slicked their hair back, you know, it was kind of a greasy slick, yeah. slicked over kind of look. And so going into it, that was my original thought about his character was, you know, he'd wake up and throw a quick comb through his greasy hair and go about his day. But Tim, you know, he had this, he calls it a, like an impish gnome look. Um, He really wanted this crazed look to him. And so he came out one day with this hair and, you know, we, we actually did screen tests of it, looking at it in both ways. And it was, you know, once you saw it, it was like, all right, that's it. This crazy 
it just kind of gives him a wilder yeah. unkempt, you know, he doesn't care. He doesn't have a mirror in the house. What does he care? He just throws a hat on and goes outside. And so I think that kind of led to, you know, just the way he lives. He's got to, if he doesn't cook it, he's not going to eat. If he doesn't, you know, he's got to hunt it or, or grow it. And that's how he lives. So it, it just kind of built that, built that character. And uh, it was, it was an amazing experience to, to work with him. And I, I feel like you couldn't grow a better actor in a laboratory to kind of speak in antiquated English. He's, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he's so amazing. And, and it, you know, goes back to, you know, Oh brother, where art thou or any of the many films that he's done yeah. where, where he kind of has to speak in what seems stylized to us now. And in, in the case of the Coen brothers is very stylized, but still is sort of like just using throwback language to, to the period yeah. in which the movie's taken place in. So we only have a few more minutes. I, I kind of just like I'm, I'm interested to hear about sort of the film community in uh, Tennessee. It's something that I'm I, I mean, I'm from the south. I'm from Florida uh, and I worked in Alabama. I worked in Georgia. I never worked in Tennessee, but I'm just, you know, like it sounds like you did a lot of this kind of based where you are and were able to find. I mean, like you looked in other places, but like what what's the scene there? Like uh, what's the we, filmmaking vibe? We have an amazing crew here and it's you know, cause there, the show Nashville was here and then our show still the King was here. So our, our sets were the most enjoyable time. And I think, you know, people still, you know, when I run into people that in the business that crew and stuff, and they're like, I still have not had the most, as much fun as I did on that show, you know, cause oh, wow. it's just, it became such a family and, you know, we had over a hundred people on the show working and it was, the crew is just such a family and so, so nice to each other. We actually won uh, after lunch, we went to lunch and the idea came up to have a career day. And so, you know, this is a, a network, really? <laughs> you know, cable show. And we were on, it was four day episodes. So after lunch, we agreed to everyone put their name in a hat and you draw it and you switch places with that person as a job. So I actually, I was directing the episode. I became a gaffer for an hour. One of the camera PAs became the DP. And like, it was, it was great to watch people take these new roles. And so we actually, the actors were all in on it. They loved it. Everyone, they got to block the scene and shoot two takes of it. And of course, our our line producer's pulling his hair out. He's like, "This is costing us tens of thousands of dollars," but it was it was such a morale <laughs> booster. And you know, so this crew is people that we worked with for years. And so when we had to do this movie during COVID times, and and trust mm. that people weren't going out on the weekends, and and really hunker down and and be in this you know this part of Tennessee for 21 days, there's no other crew that you know we knew we could trust this crew, and they're so capable and and just bring so much extra to every scene that it. You know, it, it, it was just amazing. I, it, I would put them against any crew on the planet. They're just phenomenal, creative and, and caring and thoughtful in their jobs. So I think it's it, it's great. I can't speak highly enough about the Nashville crew. That's so, awesome. Well, and before we get going, is there uh, first, what what is the release uh, information to so we can uh, tell our listeners? Comes out in theaters, uh, New York, LA, and then select cities across the country, October 1st. Mm -hmm. um, and then it'll be on demand and like iTunes and, and things like that on the 15th of October. That's awesome. Um, and I'm never right about prognosticating, but I was talking to my friend Janelle Riley, who's been on our show a bunch, and she had interviewed Tim, Tim Blake Nelson about this. She, she writes for Variety. And, okay. and I was like, I'll be surprised if Tim Blake Nelson doesn't get an Oscar nomination for this. And I, and oh, I, I really have my fingers crossed. I thought it was just uh, just a standout and amazing performance. So uh, no, that's, a, that's amazing to hear. Yeah. He's the most well-deserved person for that. He's I, I think been around be for so amazing. long, and I've never yep. seen him do a bad job ever. He's such a great actor. Really so. hasn't. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, where can people find you online if uh, they want to check out some of your work? I guess Instagram at getpotsy. 
G-E-T-P-O-T-S-Y. So check it out, and uh, we'll definitely be encouraging our listeners to uh, seek out and uh, and find Old Henry when it comes out in early October. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the awesome. Cinematography Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, so as keen observers of that interview, uh, meaning anyone who listened to it at all, uh, noted in the middle of the interview, my wife heard me bring up John Matishak. And she walked over and wrote a little note on a post-it note and handed it to me and said, John Matishak was the gaffer on Conversations, which was a short film that I directed in 2003 and uh, she produced. And I remember John and I was pretty sure that I was right about where I remembered him from. And then I asked him and we, we kind of talked about it. We mostly don't talk about the short film I made in 2003 because... What? Because... I thought that would be a reminiscing for a half hour about that short <laughs> No, no, no. Shot, <laughs> shot by our, I believe, second guest ever, Fraser Bradshaw. Uh, but no, we didn't talk about it at, at great length. But it was it was cool to reconnect with John because I don't think I've actually spoken to him since we shot that. Not that it ended badly or anything. I just, for whatever reason, we just lost touch like you do. Um, and uh, it, it, it was great to reconnect with him and to see that he's, you know, not just old Henry, but like going through his work and what he's been doing. He's been doing just some amazing, amazing work. So uh, here is our interview with John Matishak. I'm here today with John Matishak, DP of Old Henry and uh, lots of other stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show, John. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for having me. So, uh, interesting story for our listeners, but I was talking to your director. We don't talk to a lot of directors here, but we were really excited to talk to uh, Potsy, the director of Old Henry, which is just a phenomenal Western. And your name came up, and because it's the pandemic and we're all working from home, my wife and I are sharing a home office, and she was directly behind me making uh, HGTV shows, and she heard your name. And she wrote on a post-it and came over and she's like, he was the, he was the gaffer on Conversations, which is a short that we made in 2003 that was shot by Fraser Bradshaw, who I believe was the third guest we ever had on the podcast. And it blew my mind and it kind of like sent me down because I remember talking to you back then. And uh, anyway, I was trying to remember, how did we find you for Conversations? I have a theory, but I wanted to see if I was right. Ah, man, I know that's such a, such a small world at times. Um, I was trying to kind of think about that as well. I mean, it might have been through an organization, Filmmakers Alliance. That's what I thought it was. Through, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Like, through no, it totally stuff. was. I think uh, Liam Finn or Jacques Telemach, who ran that organization, one of them, I think, recommended you. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just a great organization at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, they're still around in some form. And actually, I've worked with Liam on a bunch of projects uh, separately from that. But at the time, they had two things that that were uh, a humongous draw to us to make that short. Number one, if you joined them, you could get under their group insurance and you could use that for production insurance. So we were able to, like, insure all the gear and, you know, <laughs> right, right. The SAG contracts and all that, all that stuff. And number two, they had this amazing warehouse in Pasadena and they had a bunch of like set pieces that had been donated by Warner Brothers or something. And you could just make a set in their in their space and so we did that we we made there's a morgue that figures prominently in the short and we were able to sort of cobble together out of the set pieces our own morgue set and we had fly walls and it, it was uh it was pretty amazing actually it was it was a great resource and it's kind of hard to come by that kind of stuff in la or anywhere like today they don't i don't i don't think there's anyone who does what filmmakers alliance did back then 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember working on a handful of shorts, you know, back then kind of in between other jobs and other, other work. So it's, you know, I guess you never know um, who you're going to run into years down the road after working on, on these shorts that they have, you know, you know, the short films, they have their own life, but then, you know, the, the interactions and the different collaborators you kind of come into contact with. Um, it's just kind of cool to see where all that kind of goes down, <laughs> down the road. And here we Absolutely. are chatting, you know, it's wild. I know, I know. It was just, it was just a mind blowing. And again, I hope Ben uh, Katz leaves that moment in there, even though it's like, uh, you know, the kind of thing we would usually cut out of an interview was just the moment where I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, yeah, I remember him. Uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of looking at your website and looking at the work that you've been doing. And I mean, like really just some amazing, gorgeous work. And in my opinion, I, I'm hoping anyway that old Henry, you know, kind of like blows you up. And, you know, next time we talk to you, you're making a Marvel movie or whatever it is you want the next big step in your life to be. Because uh, old Henry is, uh, I think, a remarkable piece of work. So I got a bunch of this uh, in talking to Potsy, but I'm interested in hearing it from from your perspective. What brought you to the project? I know you'd worked with him before, but like what what really turned you on about old Henry? Yeah, I mean, you know, Potts and I, we did a television show a couple years before he even sent me the the first script of old Henry. But I remember he was at the time trying to, you know, find what his next project is. And he had sent me a couple different westerns and then some of them i weren't you know they they just were kind of a little bigger in scope and so when i when he sent me old henry i remember just being immediately drawn in because it was such a kind of a it was just kind of a simple story you know there wasn't a town square where a shootout's gonna happen there wasn't like a drunk bar fight in a saloon that you know kind of these other kind of western ideas and scenes and scenarios that kind of end up in westerns and so i was really excited that it was it was just kind of a, a very simple story. I think the film ultimately is just kind of very plot driven from the very beginning. And you just kind of, these things happen and they, these events happen and you can't go back. It just kind of slowly keeps going and building and building and building kind of all the way to the end. So I've always been kind of a fan of those movies when they're done correctly or when people take the time to kind of get those right. And so for me, it was just, it was just that. It was like, oh, this is a script that really just kind of came together right off the page, I feel like. And so as soon as Potsy and I started talking about ideas that were in the script and, and how we can like, you know, adapt and change certain things, it just was a very seamless process in terms of the script development of it. But yeah, I think he initially sent it to me probably a year or a year and a half before we had Tim attached. And then, um, you know, once we had Tim attached, that's when it was like, okay, we're really go, we're we're really going into kind of pre-production right now. And then we start, you know, we obviously scouted around different states to try to figure out yeah. what was the best. But Patsy was saying that like that location was the lo- the location that you used was the location that inspired the story in the first place. Yeah, which is you know, it's one of those things. I guess when you see different different places that inspire you, and so um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think yeah, because he had initially kind of seen that but then i think you do your due diligence and then we were like i think at one point trying to you know think if we should go to oklahoma i think they even potsy took a scouting trip to new mexico at one point and then we kind of ended up back maybe where it started (laughs) you know (laughs) at this at this like settler's cabin on on a giant property it's such a unique location like the in the detail work on the inside like when i was watching it i couldn't tell if it was a set but it if it was it felt unbelievably authentic but as a cinematographer, when you're making a movie where 85 to 90 percent of that movie all takes place in and around that house, 
what do you do to, to keep it from feeling repetitive? And there's always the temptation of like, oh, we're going to be in this room a bunch. What if we do all the masters from from right here? Let's like bang them all off, you know, so that we don't have to reset the lights and reset this and reset that, you know, to basically block shoot, which it does not look like you did that. So how, how do you go about like kind of keeping the locations fresh and keeping it moving when you are kind of, uh, I don't want to say stuck, but you're restrained creatively to this location? Sure. No, I think that's a great question. I mean, I, it's from some of our early walkthroughs of the house. I feel like Potts and I just kind of worked that, I guess, the visual language for lack of a better word, I, I guess, in terms of like, oh, well, these are these are the scenes in the house we have and kind of placing what scenes were going to happen in which room and then kind of making sure that that was spread out throughout the story. So we weren't having multiple scenes in like the same room back to back visually. So, you know, the first thing we did was kind of like figure out what the rooms were going to be. Because at one point, the bedroom was going to be in a different room and then this. But then we, it kind of all just kind of fell into place, you know, with Max, our production designer, kind of like leading us as well in terms of mm-hmm. kind of figuring out what rooms would be best for for certain things. And so from my standpoint, I was just kind of making sure that we were bearing that up visually. Because um, there's certain rooms that we really, really enjoyed shooting in. And then there's other rooms that were kind of more more difficult just because they were you know, had less windows or the the windows yeah, that were yeah. in there weren't the right size or there was a giant overhang on one of them. So I couldn't get the light where I wanted to or kind of needed to for certain things. So I think it was just making sure that we utilize kind of every room and then trying to kind of visually change that up where, whereas if we had seen a room from one perspective, you know, in a master, like, oh, well, let's be sure to kind of change it up. Let's see the the opposite angle if it makes sense for the blocking, you know, in the story. So we definitely tried to make sure that we kind of saw everything because I think we enjoyed kind of every inch of that house. And so we wanted to make sure yeah. that we saw it at least, at, you know, at some point, just kind of, you know, utilizing that. Well, before I even knew that I was going to be seeing your film, I've been kind of revisiting some old Westerns like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And it, it was interesting to see it. Because like you see the visual cues that you see in a lot of Westerns, but it is different. Like, you know, I think of the shot through their front door, uh, you know, where you see the the hillside off in the distance and all that stuff. Like that's just, you know, an iconic Western kind of shot. But the color palette was, I mean, obviously the good, the bad, and the ugly is over 50 years old or it's like 55 years old, I think now. So, you know, the, the technology and stuff to create that look was, diff- was so different than what we have today. But I, I really loved the detail and the texture and the color that kind of pushed through it. It really lent so much more authenticity to the, to the overall thing. And I thought that was that was great. Can you talk a little bit about like what Westerns inspired you or like what if it wasn't Westerns, like what movies informed, inspired, uh, you know, you took any kind of cues from and, and anything like that? One of the earliest things I did uh, in prep, once we really started talking about the script in detail, was just try to do as much research as I could on that time period. I tried to go through as many photographs as I could, I could from the actual turn of the century, photographs that had been taken you know, in 1896 or, you know, 1901. So I wanted to get a real feel for who these people were and what kind of what kind of type of lives that they lived. You know, I wanted to see 
this past image and get a sense of, of who they were as people or as how their homesteads were. And some of those um, early photographers um, like, like Timothy O'Sullivan, William Jackson, the way they kind of captured the American West and, and the American ideals and landscapes, it's just kind of fascinating. So, um, and I kind of found that through all that, there was a sense of isolation in a lot of these images, a, a strongness, you know, um, to the people being photographed, a grit. And some of my earliest conversations with Potsy were more related, I think, to production design and wardrobe um, than anything else, because those things were a way into that world. I also stumbled upon Andrew Wyeth, uh, the American painter, and I'd been familiar with his work, but his work was just a great resource because he was able to capture this this harshness this isolation, this this farm life, this rural farm life, so vividly. I mean, his characters and all of his work seems lar- they seem larger than life, but at the same time, they're also kind of simple. So that was interesting how how you could elevate this kind of simple, uh, holistic life. Um, and in terms of kind of film references, I always enjoy watching films and, and sharing them with a the director and, and other department heads. Again, the thing I came away with watching the more modern westerns such as the assassination of Jesse James and, and Scott Cooper's Hostiles was the, uh, was the texture that was created, the world in which their story takes place. Um, more than kind of being timeless, I feel like they kind of captured this truth and honesty. And I, we, we really went for that. We tried to really get into the, the details of things on this film from a photographic standpoint, from a, from a design standpoint. I feel like the more we leaned into the details of things, like the oil lamps in, in, in the cabin or the furniture or the tables, the more we leaned into kind of like going into those specifics, the more the world kind of became more authentic. Um, I think there's also, there's film references that you watch and, and they're kind of grand in scale, you know? Um, and I think these, the images of these kind of classic Westerns are just kind of in our in our psyche as well. And so obviously some of those framing choices from great filmmakers like John Ford and Sam Peckinpah and, and Hawks. I mean, you can, they're, they're in, they're in our film as well, but hopefully in a way that feels a little bit nuanced or, or our, our version of things. In terms of detail, I do enjoy this one story in particular about our, um, our art director, Ruby, how she was kind of bringing in all these amazing set decoration and one of the things was this table. And she said that this table came out of a house in White's Creek, which was probably about, I don't know, a couple hours away from where we were filming in Tennessee. And White's Creek at one point in time was a hideout for the, uh, for the James gang. And so this table that is in our film that they sit at, that they dig a bullet out around. And this table is, you know, it's a 150 year old table that came out of the house where where Frank and Jesse live. So there's it's kind of amazing to think that this table that we were using, you know, Jesse and Frank might have actually sat sat around and and discussed their lives or what they were going to, you know, do or what they were going to plot next. Um so I find that just kind of really fascinating along with just all of the the things from the period we were able to kind of include in our film. Uh it was a real uh it was like an honor. You tried to like be respectful of of the weight of that, you know, the weight of the cabin, the weight of of these things that have lived so much more life than you have. You're trying to just do justice to those things because I think those things have a weight and a, and a power to them as well. So let's kind of talk a little bit about, you know, your career leading up to this. The number one question I always ask everybody is what was the moment in your life where you realized cinematography was a job at all and it was something you could do? 
Well, it was, I remember the first time I started making video projects, you know, with like your friends. I think I was like 16 or 17. And that was when uh, I had a history teacher throw this out there to the class. He said, okay, everyone can do a research paper. Or if you want to do like a video project, you can also do like a video project instead of writing a paper. And I was like, absolutely. I will absolutely do that. That sounds way more fun. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we did some, some terrible 1930s gangster kind of, you know, little film and turned it in and, and, and got a, a passable grade. And so I think that just, you know, I just kind of got involved and, and, and got really excited about kind of doing more of those video projects. And then at, at some point I was like, oh, I could actually go to school for that. And so I think like everyone going to film school, you kind of like have this idea of like, oh, I'm going to du- direct and I want to be a director. And so um, I kind of went in with those ideas and then kind of quickly just went in and started playing with cameras. And then, mm-hmm. um, and so, I, yeah, I just kind of started shooting and then I really enjoyed it. And what, what was the film school? What, what school did you go to? It was Emerson College. Oh, okay. I know a bunch of people went to Emerson. Yeah, there's like a big class of us. There's like a lot. There's a, there's a, there's a handful of us that are actually still in the business doing it, you know, 20 years later, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Yeah. That's awesome. And I mean, I guess I already knew this because this is where I met you, but some people, as soon as they get out into the real world, they focus on being a cinematographer and they DP lower budget stuff and then work their way up. Some people go into the camera and electrical department and you have a ton of camera and electrical uh, credits. You know, like I, I think I met you kind of early-ish in your career, but uh, you were gaffing or was it primarily electric for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny for the, when I first moved out to LA, I remember the longest time I was like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be DP. Maybe I'll be like uh, a studio. I don't know. I, I got a development internship. And so for a while I was like, oh, maybe I'm going to be like someone's assistant in a, in a production company, like develop material and maybe like, maybe do spec commercials on the side or like, I wasn't really sure. And I remember I just couldn't land a job. Like I would have these interviews at these different assistants at agencies and stuff. And I just, they just saw through that that was not me. And I remember, um, <laughs> you know, a buddy of mine from film school, uh, Eric Messerschmidt called me and he was like, Hey, do oh, you want to like, him on here? he's amazing. <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah. He's great. And his stuff yeah. is, is fantastic. And so I remember, yeah, yeah. I remember literally sitting at, I think it was like even still sitting at my internship and he's like, Hey, do you want to come? you know, be a third electric on something, you know, some independent film back in the day. And and I just was like, okay. And so from that, I worked on other sets. And so, yeah, I kind of worked in this, this indie, indie world kind of just electric or grip or whatever it was. And so you slowly kind of make your way through that, you know, until, I don't know, I think it was a couple of years later, I found myself gaffing for like a couple other of the same DPs. And I remember this one DP in particular, he asked me to gaff and I wasn't really, keen on gaffing but i said okay i'll gaff it but i want to do your second unit he's like we don't have a second unit i was like i know but maybe by the time we wrap this film there will be and so sure enough by the time we wrap this movie there's like two second unit days oh like like, on the last day of the last towards the end of the schedule i remember i was like i'll I'll, i was like my first legitimate um dp like paid dp job was like you know doing second unit uh for this like terrible terrible sci-fi film out in the desert but it was like shooting on 35 back then and it was just like oh this is cool you know um and then a year later he called me and he said hey do you want to go to cambodia and shoot a movie 
And I was like, absolutely. He's like, do you want to read the script? I was like, sure, I'll read the script, but I'm doing this movie. Like, <laughs> the, I don't have to read the script to know if I'm doing, if we're going to go to Cambodia and do a movie together or not. And so sure enough, we did. And I think that was the first time I felt like I had like a, vo a true voice in kind of my work. And I feel like that mm -hmm. resonated. And so I was able to get, um, that's when I started really kind of just shooting. It takes everything out of you as an artist, I feel like, to to create a visual language for a world, you know, or a visual language for the story. And so that I guess the project just has to really speak to that because I'm mm -hmm. going to give everything to it. And I also have a young family. We I have, I have two young kids. And so I'm also aware of just kind of balancing that, you know. And that is a, a tough balancing act. And, you know, how, how old are your kids now? uh seven and then uh my youngest will be five and then october so yeah like i've been going through the same thing because i think i told you off mic before we started like i have a son who's three now so it's uh, i and, and i actually have my first shoot in a long time this week and it's just like oh boy i'm freaking out a little bit like how's it gonna work um by the time this airs i probably will have already had that shoot and we'll uh we'll we'll say it was no big deal but uh but yeah i mean to me that having a family actually changes it uh, you know changes the calculus a lot because you know you also have you do have to make those those choices about like what's going to pay enough is it worth it because you know doing the free stuff becomes really hard when you have to make sure somebody else has you know food and clothes all the time besides yourself in your case two people yeah and in that same, but in that same kind of idea, I feel like some of those projects that are your close collaborators, where maybe there is maybe not money there for you know a passion film or a passion project, you know, um, or even a feature that might not have you know the biggest budget. You have to, you, I think, you still have to listen to that voice inside and say, is this one of those projects that I have to do? Yeah. And, yeah. and if that is, then you just have to kind of make the the sacrifice. It becomes a larger conversation. Like for, it becomes a conversation for my you know, my wife and I, because she's definitely a huge part of my success or, or our success in terms of navigating, even deciding projects and deciding all kinds of things. But I think, you know, so it becomes just like a, you know, a team, a team decision at that point of what are we going to do, you know, for the next couple, couple months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have other features uh, in the pipeline that you're uh, looking to jump on right now or that you're already, you're already making? I actually just right before Venice, um, I actually just I was in New York. Uh, I wrapped up a film called Me Cute with Pete Davidson and Kaylee Cuoco. Oh, wow. Uh, so with a good buddy of mine was the director of that, Alex Lehman, and he's a Emerson alum as well. So Go we to film we, school, folks. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like that's, it's, it's the so best funny. networking you'll ever do. <laughs> I mean, well, it's really it's, it's great how Alex and I have been reconnected because we when I moved back to LA in 2019, we got together, reconnected, hadn't really seen each other in years. And then after the kind of, as we were kind of coming out of the pandemic, or at least out of 2020, he reached out and he had, he had this script he'd been working on uh, called Acid Man. Um, mm -hmm. And so we actually shot that in April and May of this past year. And that has Thomas Hayden Church in it. So we shot that up in Oregon. Oh, wow. A small, small two-hander up in Oregon. And then while I think while we were in the production, while we were shooting that, he was like, hey, I think this other film might go. We might go to New York sooner than later. So, yeah, I kind of did did two of his films back to back. Oh, wow. Uh, that's pretty Early sweet. this year. So, yeah. if Yeah. So, so that's kind of like, yeah, it's been 11 months of, of, of movies, really, where I hadn't 
shot a film in, in, in years. So it's been, it's been a very exciting, you know, 11, 12 months, I guess now. Yeah. Nuts. Well, cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If people are looking for your work, uh, where can they see your work online? Yeah, I guess just my, uh, my website is, is where it all is at the moment. It's johnmatashack.com. And we'll have a, a link to that in our show notes. Uh, are you on Instagram or Twitter, any place where people can uh, inter- interface with you? I'm, in, I'm on Instagram. It's uh, John underscore Mattishak. So again, I can't recommend Old Henry enough. I hope a lot of people check it out. Uh, amazing work. I look forward to seeing uh, the other features that you did over the last year and uh, as soon as they come out and have you back on the show. And it's, it's great to just see you, again, see you again after all these years. That was great. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Really appreciate it. So that was John Matishak. Thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. It was great to reconnect with you. And uh, all through the magic of Filmmakers Alliance, circa 2003. Pretty amazing stuff. Nice. Very, very good. Hey, Ben, you know what time it is? I suspect I know. It's bill paying time. Paying those bills. Yay! We got to thank a wonderful sponsor for the show, uh, DZO Film, maker of uh, very fine, inexpensive, lightweight cinema lenses. And they actually have a couple of dedicated MFT or Micro Four Thirds cinema lenses, which uh, they come in Micro Four Thirds mount and they make a couple of really nice short zooms. And by short, I mean, they're not huge lenses. They're relatively short, although the the range is pretty decent. Uh, The first one is a 20 to 70. It's a T29. And they also make a 10 to 24 T29, and they're uh, professional, high-quality zoom lenses, but made for small cameras like Panasonic, uh, you know, GH5s and Blackmagic Pocket 4K cinema camera. So uh, these are really well-built, parfocal, lightweight, inexpensive lenses. And if you need something that is not mirrorless, DSLR type of lens that's uh, all about autofocus, uh, you should definitely look into these because they make some really great images and uh, they're also available at Hot Rod Cameras. So if you don't know where to, to find stuff, you should, here's the shameless plug for Hot Rod Cameras at the same time. But yeah, uh, hit us up at Hot Rod Cameras. We keep the DZO short micro four thirds lenses in stock and they have a a nickname or they have a product line which it's going to sound like i'm making a joke but i'm not they are called the ling lung the ling lung cinema lenses ling lung ling lung l-i-n-g l-u-n-g well it's a chinese company and i don't know what ling lung means but it is uh the classification they have for these two lenses interesting you know who we should really get uh you know whose opinion we should really get about them who's that KZL Atraxi. He <laughs> happens to be a, a proud owner of a pocket camera, and uh, he's a big uh, black magic guy, and I bet he would love to check out some kick-ass lenses on his Micro Four Thirds cameras. Well, Kays knows where to find me. I can absolutely make that happen. Let's do it. Right. Kays, I know you're listening. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is our famed short end time of the show. What is your short end this week? Uh, my patent pending short end is it's a TV series on Hulu that I uh, gave a shot to. There's like, you know, only eight bazillion TV series that are constantly uh, premiering. Like, I think you and I are each making five of them while we're talking to each other. <laughs> There's so many TV shows on. Mm. Uh, it's called Only Murderers in the Building. And it stars Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez, who you would not think would be an amazing foil for those two men. But, oh, my God, is she brilliant. Hmm. And it's about, like, a washed-up actor played by Steve Martin and a washed-up theater director played by Martin Short. And they live in this building in New York, and Selena Gomez is one of their neighbors, and and, uh, somebody in the building commits suicide. And they decide to make a podcast about it. 
So it's kind of a TV show about a podcast Hmm. and it's really funny. It's really funny. It's really clever. It's a, it's a well-written mystery. And I I have to make a shout out to somebody who I have known for a very long time. Who's one of the writers on it. His name is Kirker Butler and Kirker and I were art department PAs in Orlando in the mid nineties together. Nice. And uh, we worked on an alpha, the very same alpha insurance commercial that I uh, complained about in my war story. Uh, yes. We, we had, we had worked on that together and Kirker came out here and busted his ass. He got a job as like a producer on like E news daily or one of those kinds of shows. Then he moved on to um, not Hannah Montana. Maybe it was Hannah Montana. No, it was, it was a show like that. It was a Disney show. And then he got on family guy as a writer Mm. and he has been just kicking all the ass ever since. And I've stayed loosely in touch with him, but when I watch this show, it's uh, not to denigrate any of his previous work because he's, he's really done amazing stuff. But when I saw this show, I was like, wow, like it's just, it's a class act. And uh, it's been a long time since we've seen Steve Martin on the screen. Mm. He doesn't really do a lot of acting anymore. And he's, he's just wonderful. And uh, the, the cast top to bottom is wonderful. Nathan Lane is in the show. And uh, it somehow strikes a balance of being kind of a dark comedy, but also keeping its tone kind of light. It's hard to describe because even the subject matter is a little morbid about these people investigating a suicide that they're convinced was a murder. But uh, anyway, and, and it looks amazing. It was shot by Chris Teague. I don't know. Maybe we'll get Chris on the show one of these days. He also shot Russian Doll. He's kind of an indie film superstar. And uh, uh, that's my short end. All right. Well, that, that's a uh, that's a great short end. Uh, my short end this week is the before mentioned and probably mentioned ad nauseum. So many people out there are talking about this, and by evidence, I did a couple of quick Google searches, and the total number of results equal that of about Harry Potter, maybe a little bit more right now. And I'm talking about Squid Game. Squid Game is ridiculously popular. Uh, New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, both in the last day uh, wrote articles about it. There, there's executives from Netflix who are doing sort of like press tours and doing interviews. Uh, I, I got to bring up Squid Game here because it's not original so far in that we've all seen a show or a movie or a comic book or something that is... Or two. Or two, or maybe, or ten, that have uh, similar sorts of themes, similar sorts of ideas, uh, but the execution and the entertainment value from it is so high that it's the execution is, is is great. And so many people talk about execution dependent, and it's really true. There's so many versions of like, you know, the most dangerous game, which are unwatchably bad because they're put together sloppily and poorly, but but not this. It's put together in a really smart way and you become engaged with the characters. And it doesn't surprise me at all that this is uh, a worldwide phenomenon. And what's interesting though now in the era of Netflix, it's a worldwide phenomenon at exactly the same moment in 90 different countries all over the world, people are talking about one thing. And that that's kind of amazing. In the past, it used to be very much a systematic rollout. You know, there's only so much yeah. money and attention that big media companies could even put into the the global launch in a number of different countries for for whatever the 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 franchise might be. But here, one thing comes out, hits the zeitgeist, and suddenly, boom, the entire world's talking about it. And it turns out it's Squid Game. And if you haven't yeah, and seen I, it, and if I'm not mistaken, yeah. the guy who created it has been pitching this idea for over 10 years. Yes, like he, he wrote it like 10 years ago and it took him a long time to get it made. And uh, now it's possibly the the biggest global phenomenon on Earth uh, at the moment. 
I, I would say yes. And it, it was a, a 10 year story. And let me tell you, in just the last like 48 hours, if you wanted to spend all day reading about people who have written about Squid Game, you would have no shortage, including all the major trades, The Guardian, The Mirror, you name it. Anything that's covering yeah. entertainment is covering Squid Game. And uh, I can understand exactly why it would be rejected, too, because if you saw so many other properties that are similar in concept and poor execution, there's no reason that, that you'd, you'd think we need to have another one of these. But Well, uh, even stuff that's done with great execution, so like Battle Royale or The Hunger Games, hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't seen Squid Game yet, so I, I, know that it's, I, I know it's different than those things, but also very similar in, in concept. You got to remember that this is not some sort of like big name star. It's not a Tom Cruise that's headlining this thing that's, you know, has some sort of giant instant worldwide box office appeal. No, this is, you know, unless you are are really up on your Korean television shows, you you probably don't recognize anyone in there. So it's a guess what? That makes a show like this honestly better when you don't know who anyone is, because like if you're watching a movie with Tom Cruise, you're you're thinking they're not going to kill Tom Cruise. And then. If they kill Tom Cruise, it's like, holy crap, they killed Tom Cruise. It pulls you out of the story. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is why a lot of like horror franchises especially don't need to have big stars in them because you want the unexpected to be possible and to not pull you out of the story. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out. I just haven't seen it yet. I remember when Emilio Estevez was uh, revealed to be killed in the first like 15 minutes of Mission Impossible and people were like, Emilio Estevez is a huge actor. How could they kill him off? But, but, you know, it, it, it happens so rarely. It's, it's one of those moments that people, people talk about. So, of course, Emilio Estevez, admittedly, not quite as big as he was perhaps in 1986. Yeah, it starts fading yeah. a little bit. But, yeah, a little know, bit. I, I, I'm sure he's doing okay. I think so. He's doing just fine. Anyway. anyway uh, uh, <laughs> so who do we need to thank uh, this week? As opposed to all the other weeks. <laughs> Copy paste. Uh, let's thank the listeners. Let's thank the people who are our loyal subscribers. And if you're not a subscriber to the show, come on, subscribe. You know, we've it's got free. A, it's, it's free. You know, we don't spam you. We don't like, you know, chase you down and go, why didn't you listen to the last episode? Uh, you know, we've got our nice uh, YouTube channel now. You can subscribe over there and, you know, you'll get to see the video version of our audio podcast, which, you know, newsflash, there isn't necessarily a ton of video that goes in there. But our editor does a really good job of putting in some visual enhancements here and there. Plus, we got to, you know, plug Assemble.tv and the Nate Watkin interview and demonstration we did on, on our YouTube channel. And don't forget, if you use the code Cinepod, you get a month free of Assemble. So, hey, thank you, dear listeners, for subscribing to us in all the places you can and listening to us in all the places that you can. Our numbers are getting uh, frightfully close to a million downloads now. Well, uh, I, I know we'll have a we'll have a nice little celebration when we're there, but we're really close right now. So, yeah, we're really glad. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for listening. And uh, let's also thank some of the people who make this show possible. People like Ben Katz. Who uh, we've made it a little bit difficult for this evening. Oh my god! But uh, but Ben, Never thank you for for, for cutting us together and making us not sound totally inept. Uh, let's thank Kays Alatrachi. Kays, thank you for listening. I know that you're listening. I saw you this past week, and I appreciate you listening to the show and telling all your friends about how you know we're awesome and all that stuff. Or probably telling them that we're wrong. Yeah, probably telling them that we're we're perpetually wrong. And let's thank producer extraordinaire Alana Cody, who is putting all of this stuff together and forcing us to work here at 11 o'clock at night to make yeah. this happen. So. It's not 11 o'clock at night. Oh, by the way, uh, we Close. should mention Kay Zalatracci is the composer of all the music that you heard. Oh, that's right. We should. We should. And you can find more about Kay's at musicbykays.com. 
Hey, yes, ben. And then we, and then we think Alana Cody, our in, <laughs> intrepid producer, uh, kicking all the ass, lining up some outrageously exciting stuff that like I'm super busy right now. And I'm like, God damn it. I want to just go like I want to focus on this. So uh, thank you, Alana, for uh, for giving me dilemmas. <laughs> all right, Ben, where can people find you if they want more Ben Rock in their life? BenRockOnline.com. Go to BenRockOnline.com and you know you can look at my reel. You can see some some theater that I directed. You can uh, poke around a little bit, listen to Video Palace, the podcast that I co-wrote and directed a, a few years ago. Uh, check it all out. Ilya, where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, HotRodCameras.com. I'm there most of the time. A lot of the time, probably too much time, but a lot of the time. And if you need uh, expert help or advice on cameras, lenses, lighting, uh, you name it, either myself or someone else there can definitely do that for you. We sell all manner of production equipment, then we can do it for you too. Excellent. So that about wraps it up, and we will see you next week on the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.